Hi friends, and welcome to Robcast number 16. This one is called 19 letters with an exclamation point, and do not leave out that exclamation point. 19 letters. So what I wanna do in this Robcast is I wanna show you a word, and it's a long, big, loaded, provocative, mysterious, compelling word. And I wanna talk about where it comes from, I wanna talk about what it might mean in human history. And then I wanna talk about what it looks like for you and I in our everyday lives to take this word seriously. Now, uh, later this week, I'll be in Tampa and Orlando with Pete Holmes. We're doing our two-man show together at last, and we will be in Florida at the end of this week. Would love to see you there. Uh, you can get tickets at robbell.com or peteholmes.com. And then I'm doing this big event in June here in Southern California. It's called Keep Going. And uh, just basically picture a Robcast, all of us together in a theater for a couple of days talking about the things that matter most. I'm bringing, um, of course, you'll, all, you'll be there, my friends. And then I'm bringing um, my other friends like uh, Vicki Beeching will be there and Kristen Bell will be there and Carlton Cuse and Pete Holmes and Pete Rollins. And we're gonna be talking about courage we're gonna be talking about grace under fire. We're gonna be talking about learning, growing, changing, evolving, and how you do that with kindness and compassion without losing your mind. And uh, so all that info is at robbell.com. Would love to see you there in June. And then everything is spiritual. Uh, everything is spiritual part two. Tour will be this summer. And uh, we're just a couple weeks away of releasing all the dates and tickets, and I'm coming to your city, um, or I'm coming to a city near you, and so more info on that is coming, but the first opening night dates, tickets are now available. I'll be at the Regent Theater. I'm doing two nights at the Regent Theater in downtown Los Angeles, and you can get tickets for that at regenttheater.com um, or uh, robbell.com will direct you all to that. And then, I'm on Instagram, Real Rob Bell, and the reason why I tell you that, and it's linked to Twitter and to Facebook, is because this word that we're gonna talk about um, in this Robcast, I'm gonna show you this word, and it'll be um, on Instagram, it'll be a picture of the word, so that you can get a tattoo of it, or you can you know, write it on your wall, or on your hand, or you can make a sticker of it, or a t-shirt. I'd like to see all of the places that you put this word, got it? So, today, I'm gonna to do a sermon about a word. And it's a big, loaded, provocative, mysterious, compelling word. And I wanna show you where it comes from and why I find it so interesting. So get ready, because it's a sermon about a word. Now, this word is found in Ephesians chapter one. And so this is a letter. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and you're new to the scriptures, and you're like, oh please, the Bible. I simply begin with the assumption that real people in real places at real times wrote these books and gospels and letters and poems. And I believe they wrote this because something was happening within them. They were having encounters, transcendent encounters with the divine, and they were doing their best to put language to this story that was unfolding in their midst. So I begin with this being a bloody, sweaty, 
difficult struggle book. It chronicles actual people in real places at real times writing about their very real experiences of the world. Doubt, shame, joy, euphoria, persecution, elation, worship. They're writing about their human experiences. I also believe these books are inspired, but I start with the human. As the great theologian Bruce Springsteen said, whatever we know about the divine comes to us through the human. I start with the human element and then ask, is there something going on here? Something that maybe takes us beyond just our flesh and blood experience. Got it? So in this letter, it begins with a giant run-on paragraph. It's a man named Paul, one of the first Christians. He's writing to some of his friends, the first Christians who lived in a city called Ephesus, which was a major global center in the first century. Ephesus was in Asia Minor, which is a present-day Turkey, and probably he sent them this letter, and then these letters would have been passed around to the other first churches that were beginning to bloom in the Roman Empire at this time in the first century. He sends them this letter, and right away in this giant run-on paragraph that starts the letter, he talks about the God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing. He talks about us being children of God. He talks about God who does this with pleasure and will. He talks about glorious grace. He talks about a gift we've been freely given. He talks about redemption and forgiveness and grace that God has lavished on us. So right away, his view of the divine is a big, beautiful, buoyant vision of a God who lavishes and pours out and blesses us. This is really important because for a number of people, I don't know whether you believe in God or not, whether you find this a completely untenable notion or whether you've always been like, yeah, 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 there's a good being who's taking care of us and guiding us and calling us to, to do great things, wherever you are on that. What I find really interesting is that he begins the letter with this absolutely huge, over-the-top announcement of how he believes that there is a divine being at work in the universe who blesses us, who gives us grace, who freely gives us every kind of good gift. He uses the word lavish. These are the words he uses to describe the divine. Are these the words that you use? Do you believe? It raises all sorts of interesting questions. Do you believe underneath it all there is some sort of energetic life force that is benevolent and kind and on our side? Are we all alone? Or is there something going on right here, right now? Is there a source to everything? Does it just appear or do we all, does everything flow from a common singular source? See, these letters, these books, this library of strange, funky, inspiring, massively disturbing books raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? So he then says this. He says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So. He says, God is doing something in the world, and God is doing something because of God's good pleasure. How great is that? He believes that God is a pleasure seeker. He believes that what drives God is God's pleasure. Is that how you view God? 
think of how many, I can't even tell you how many people I've met who when they talk about God, it's this heavy, angry, uh, honestly boring being who somehow we're supposed to care about or follow or worship or whatever. His understanding is that God is up to something in the world, something deeply mysterious, according to God's good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So when he talks about Christ, he's talking about the cosmic Christ. He's talking about life force, energy, movement. He's talking about something that's happening through Christ. He's not just talking about a Jewish rabbi who was born in Galilee, came from Nazareth, called disciples, did miracles, died and rose from the dead, according to the story. He's talking about this Jesus as the revealing of something that's always been at work in the universe. See, for many people, their understanding of Jesus is that Jesus was inserted late in the game. For many people, when they understand Jesus and talk about Jesus, they're talking about basically the storyline is the whole place got really screwed up and God was like, what am I going to do with these kids? They just are making a balls up mess of everything. I don't know what voice that is I'm doing, by the way. <laughs> For many people, their understanding is God didn't expect this or didn't know this was coming or, or was sort of caught off guard. And so God was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send Jesus. And so this is like a solution to a problem. What the writer Paul here is saying is something very different. He is saying that Jesus is the revealing of something that's been at work the whole time. Uh, in the Gospel of John, the writer of John says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. So he says you have to understand when you're talking about Jesus that you're talking about the revealing of an energy and movement and force that has been present since the beginning of creation. In Ephesians 3, he talks about this mystery as something that has been revealed. He talks about his insight into the mystery. In Colossians, the writer Paul talks about a mystery that's been kept hidden for the ages, but now made known. In Romans 11, he talks about, uh, I didn't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. So when the first Christians talk about Jesus, they talk about Jesus the Christ. They're not talking about some solution that God cooked up at the last minute to try to get us out of this mess. They are talking about an ongoing force, energy, and movement that has always been present in creation and that in the first century, Jesus from Nazareth, the rabbi who calls disciples and gets frustrated with people and says funny things and tells these brilliant parables, they're talking about the revelation in flesh and blood of a mystery a truth, a reality that's been present in the very fabric of creation the whole time. Are you with me now? So what he says here then is he says, God is up to something in the world. God is up to something through Christ, through this cosmic life force energy movement. And then he says this, the thing that God is up to, to will be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So he says the whole thing is unfolding towards something to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So what is God up to in the world? He says God is up to something really, really profound through Christ. This movement that is happening through Christ 
is headed somewhere and this thing, what it's doing at its core, this movement, this energy, this action of God, this thing that God does because of God's pleasure is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Now, when you read this to bring unity to all things, it's easy to skip right over it. But this letter was written in Greek. And in Greek, if you read this in its original language, that phrase to bring unity is the word anakaphaloisestai. And those of you, by the way, who are Greek scholars are like, oh my word, Rob just totally butchered that word. Great, you pronounce it. Anakaphaloisestai. A-N-A-K-E-P-H. A-L-A-I-O-S-A-S-T-H-A-I. That is a 19-letter word, my friends. You could kick some serious ass in Scrabble with that word, let's be honest. It's only used two times. By the way, that is a weird Scrabble joke. It is used two times in the entire Bible. So what he says here is what God is up to in the world through this Christ is to anakaphelusistai all things in heaven and on earth. Now, the word is actually two Greek words put together. And if you check Instagram, you'll see what the word looks like spelled out. And once again, I'm looking forward to you posting all of the strange ways that you're going to write out this word and do interesting things with this word. Now, the word, the ana, the A-N-A at the beginning is an intensive. It's how you add sort of energy and heat to a word. It's almost like I'm, I'm really serious. I'm adding an ana to the front of this thing to show you just how big and forceful the word is. And then the word kafale there, sort of in the middle, kafala, comes from the word kafale. The general agreement seems to be that the word means head like bringing things to a head or putting a head on things, um, like an organizing center to things. Now, the word has its roots. One of the ways that it was used in ancient Greek was like a mathematical term. So sometimes it's uh, translated, instead of to bring things to unity, um, sometimes it's translated to sum things up. Now, here's how this works. Let's say I gave you an equation and I said, what's 637 divided by three, subtract 197, multiply it by two, and then subtract 18. What is that? You would say to me, oh, Rob, that's easy, that's 12. Now, when you did that, when you took 637 divided by three, subtracted 197, multiplied by two, subtracted 18, and got 12, what 12 is, is 12 summed up all of those numbers, all of those multiplying and additions and subtractions. You took all of it and you summed it up as 12. So when they use the word in the ancient language for anakaphelasus thethoi, what they were speaking of in mathematical terms was taking all of these different numbers in an equation and summing it up with one number that brings unity to all of the other numbers that are within the equation. Now, hang with me now there. Put that on the shelf. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
what the writer then says here is that what God is doing is bringing unity, summing everything up in Christ. Now, we actually do this all the time in everyday life, but we do it in a very subtle way. Imagine you're at a dinner party with your friends and you're telling stories. Think of the kinds of stories you tell around the table. Like imagine if you told a story and you're like, well, you know what, I tried this thing and I was awesome at it. And then I tried another thing because when it was clear I was awesome at this one thing, I probably should try the other thing. And when I did that, I won. So I did it again and I won again. And so from there, there was this third thing I was thinking about trying. So I went and I tried that. And on the first try, it turns out I was the best person there at it. Now, the problem with that story is we're all bored, correct? When you were like, and then I won, and then I dominated, and then I was pretty much the greatest there, which let, if you tell that story, <laughs> we're all bored out of our minds. You're, you're summing up your experience but it's not really that interesting. But think about the stories that you tell around the table that you remember. Think about the stories that pop, that crackle, that sparkle, that stick with you. It's like the story people tell about the camping trip. You've heard this one, right? People tell the story about the camping trip and how they were all excited to go out in nature and just breathe the fresh air and smell the pine cones. And then what happens? They go and it rains and the tent collapses and their food gets moldy, and some black bears show up and scare them. I don't know where you're camping, by the way. And they end up having soaking wet, and they hadn't brought a change of clothing because the weather report didn't say it was gonna rain, and then some other people who are there start creeping them out, and so they ended up spending the night in the car, and they're wet and hot but also cold, right? You tell stories about everything falling apart. How many of you have these stories? These stories about how it was supposed to be so great and then everything went to crap and everybody around the table is laughing so hard. And these are the kinds of stories that we love to tell, right? You look back on the story and what do you do? You anakafelusistai those events. You retell them. Now at the time when it was raining and the tent was falling apart and all the food was moldy, at the time you weren't like, hey, this is a great story. This is fun. I'm glad it's going this way. No, you're miserable. You're complaining. You're just bitter about this camping trip that was supposed to be so great. But when you tell it later, once time has passed, what you do is you retell it and here's the thing, here's the thing. The worst moments are what make the story so great. And that's why when you tell the story around the dinner table, we all are laughing so hard as we're picturing you with your hair plastered to your face. We're picturing you and your friends or your spouse, or your family all yelling at each other, trying, we picture you with the flashlight getting out the owner's manual to the tent and trying to figure out why it collapsed on you. We're, we're like picturing it and we're laughing really hard. And the worst moments for you are the best moments in the story, correct? What you do is you take, as the events are unfolding, it's just a random series of fragments coming at you. They're disjointed, they're maddening, they're frustrated, they're frustrating, your, your patience 
is wearing thin, you're at your wit's end, you're swearing up a storm, you're like, this is the last time I go camping. But then, later, when you anacaphalusistai that story, what do you do? You put a new head on it. You put a new organizing center in the middle of it. You gather up all those bits and pieces and fragments of the story and you retell it. When I was uh, 14, there was a pair of shoes that I wanted. I wanted Franz Beckenbauer indoor soccer shoes. Any soccer players here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Beckenbauer Specials, the Beckenbauer Specials were the bomb. They were the shoes. And you couldn't find them um, where I lived in Okemos, Michigan, in the middle of the hand. Um, you couldn't find them. One guy in my school had those shoes. And I tried forever to find the shoes, and I finally found a pair. And they fit, and they were on sale, and it was like the heavens opened, and these shoes came into my life. And they were indoor turf soccer shoes, so they had these little knobs on the bottom of them so that I could wear them for indoor soccer, but I could wear them around because I thought they were the coolest shoes ever. So I go to school the first day with these shoes, and there was a dude at my school who was like the man. Did you have this person at your school? This guy was the best athlete. All the girls loved him. He always had the best clothes. He was funny. He was at the middle of every party. He was like, he just owned the high school. He was also the biggest prick you've ever met. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody go to high school with this person? Anybody go to high school with 20 of these people or 100 of them? And he would never stop saying mean things to me. He, he like, it seemed like he practiced what he could say that would most like throw me off and humiliate me and shame me. And I'll never forget leaving science class that day that I wore those new shoes. And I'm walking down the hall and he's coming the other way and he sees me and he sees my shoes and he says in the loudest, meanest voice, Wow, great shoes. At least you won't slip in the hallway. By the way, I'm a 44-year-old man. I'm remembering a story from 30 years ago. It's, isn't that strange how stuff in your adolescence, it like sticks in there? And I will never forget, he says that, and I keep walking just crushed, just devastated. Um, he was just the biggest prick you've ever met and in that moment he completely lived up to everything I knew about him so this week uh, I'm with my kids and one of them is going through some stuff at school and I told him that story and I told him that story as an example of a yep I know exactly what you're going through but I didn't just tell him, one of my kids, that story like, yeah, I know what you're going through. I told it to him as a way of saying, I'm here and you can get through this. And all this stuff that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And what seems at the moment like the biggest deal in the world, like just a devastating, humiliating blow later, just won't seem like that big of a deal. What did I do in that moment with my kid? 
I took that story from when I was 14 and I Anna Cafe Loisestied it. I retold it, not as a story of shame, humiliation, and despair, but as a story of hope, resilience, and endurance. Now, I know what you're thinking, and that's why this word is so extraordinary. Because some of you, are, I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but it still was humiliating and painful and shameful. Exactly. See, when you anacophelusistai something, an event, a story, a trauma, a tragedy, a heartbreak, you do not remove the painful bits. You do not excise the evil from it. See, to anacophelusistai something is not to take out the negative, destructive, painful chunks of the story. It's to leave them in. It's not to gloss it over and say, actually, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a huge deal. Or to say, actually, I know it was abuse, but you know, abuse isn't, isn't really that important. No. At the center of Anna Cafe Luisistai is acknowledging how awful it was and embracing how awful it was and allowing the retelling. In the retelling, you just let it all sit there, but you've given it a new head, a new organizing center. And what happens when you do that is the worst moments are actually what make the story so great. This is why you're so inspired by people who fell down, who were criticized, people who had to uh, file bankruptcy, people who got kicked out of that school, people who had serious addiction issues, but they got back up and they kept going. This is why you're so inspired by those people, is when they tell you the story, they don't leave out the horrible parts, they tell you the horrible parts in living flesh and blood detail, and it's the worst parts when they retell the story that actually make the story so inspiring. And what this writer says is that God is up to something in the world. God, through this Christ, because of God's pleasure, is anacophelusistying the whole thing. That's the implication of the first paragraph of this letter written a couple thousand years ago. It's not getting rid of the worst moments. It's not glossing them over. It's not forgetting them. It's simply telling the story in a new way that amplifies them. It highlights them, and that's what makes the story so compelling. So how do we begin to think about this in very practical terms, how we actually live our lives? Because life often feels like a series of unrelated fragments coming at you at 100 miles an hour, doesn't it? 
Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Friend of yours gets cancer, the refrigerator breaks down, you get another bill that you don't know how you're gonna pay, another friend that you know is getting a divorce, one of your kids is struggling and it's breaking your heart. How many know exactly what I'm talking about? It often feels like confusion, anger, pain, betrayal, stress. Life can often feel like pieces, unrelated pieces coming at you. Random series of highs and mostly lows, doubts, fears, occasional joys. There is another way to see it. And to be growing in spiritual maturity is to be learning that present at all times, there is always an Anna Cafe Lucistai factor. Are you with me? For example, you're here. You're listening to this Robcast. You're listening to me give this sermon. You're breathing. You can hear. You're alive. Everything you've ever been through, everything painful, all the abuse, all the shame, all the humiliation, all the terror of whether or not you're going to make it, all the bills, all the financial stress, all of the physical illness you've ever experienced, you, my friend, are here. You made it. You survived. It did not kill you. At the most basic level, if you're like, well, every single person on the face of the planet who has ever lived, life is hard. It's difficult. It never stops throwing us painful, unrelated bits and pieces and fragments. And yet you're here. So you could simply, at the most basic level, Anna Kafelusistai your entire life by saying, I went through this, and I went through this, and I went through this, and now I'm here today, and here's the thing about today. You can choose joy. You can choose to be honest. You can choose to be compassionate. You can choose to be bitter, or you can let all that stuff make you better. You can let everything that you've been down, every person who's let you down, every idea and institution that collapsed on you, every way that you've been shot at, every sniper on every roof, every person who's ever criticized you, you can let it close you down. You can step back from your own life and retreat, or you can open yourself up and give yourself all the more freely to the people around you. You can choose to Anna Cafe Lucistai this thing that is your life. And when you do that, when you take all that pain, when you make room in yourself for the immensities of the universe, what you are doing is you are retelling your own story. See, what's interesting is some people translate this word um, that it's a mathematical idea of like summing up or gathering together. You'll notice different biblical translations translated different ways. Some people say that another way to translate the word is retelling or recapitulating that what God is doing according to God's pleasure through this Christ in the universe, this life-giving, surging, beautiful energy that surges through all of creation, that, that what God is doing is retelling the whole story. 
that what we do is we have our version of events. And then what we are learning to do is trust that there is another way to tell this story. So think about your suffering. Think about your frustrations right now. Think of the story that you are telling right now in this moment about that person, about this event, about that struggle. Is there a way to retell that story in some other way? Yes, this is a hell on earth. Yes, this is awful and difficult. And yet right now I'm going to trust that it won't last forever. And at some point I'm going to get through this and I'm going to be so grateful that I'm through this. What you're already doing in that moment is your Anna Cafe Lucistine, that thing. Yeah. You see what I mean? It's a letter written thousands of years ago, and yet the implications. Of course, the implications for human history are just stunning. Really? The whole thing can be brought to unity. It can be gathered together in such a way that's not glossing over all of the incredible abuse, all of the denial of human rights, all of the wars, all of the oppression, all of the genocide. The whole thing could be gathered together and told in such a way that it has unity and coherence, that it's redeemed and reckoned. Really? Really? You see, when somebody tells you that this book is boring or, yeah, I know all that. You do? Really? Oh, yeah, I know all those New Testament letters. I've read all that. Really? Really? You're... You're kidding me because just one word in one sentence in one verse in one chapter raises more questions more possibilities it's more provocative more compelling more disturbing more hopeful oh my word what do you even do with this so my friends is there anything in your life that needs to be Anna Cafe Lucistide? You've been focusing on the bits and pieces, the pain, how it's all unrelated. Is there any way that that story could be retold? Because you're here and you survived it. And the very life force surging through all things that is surging through you, sustaining you and giving you life, it swallowed that up and made that a part of your story. And when you make peace with that, when you say, I didn't want it, I don't think it was good, I think it was bad, I think it was awful, I think it was evil, I think it was destructive, but I'm here. And I'm not going to close down, I'm going to open up. I'm not going to be bitter about it, I'm going to let it make me better. When you do that, you are taking part in this massive universal bringing together in unity all things in heaven and on earth. You, in that moment, are Anna Cafelu sustaining your very life. May you, my brothers and sisters, feel yourself being caught up in the great retelling of the story of the universe. May all those unrelated bits and pieces and fragments begin to be reorganized in a comprehensive, integrative whole that we know to be your life. May you tell this story in all its honesty, not brushing or glossing over anything, as a story of lavish grace, of blessing after blessing, of goodness poured out on you.
and may grace and peace be yours.